Welcome to another episode of the Reboot Chronicles, a no-holds-barred forum with global leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and CEOs about how organizations stay focused on growth and innovation in unprecedented times. I'm your host, Dean DeBias, coming to you live from Revive's North American headquarters in Chicago, and we would like to thank you for joining us from around the globe today. I'd like to welcome Aurelian Lease to the program today. He's the CEO of Dermalogica, the world's top professional-grade skincare brand. It was founded by Jane Wurwind uh, back in the 80s and was acquired by Unilever in 2015. The company has become a global brand since then, sold in over 80 countries now through over 100,000 skincare professionals. We'll talk about that in a minute. And uh, I think we call it the... uh, you call it your tribe, uh, really, in it, which is kind of interesting. Thanks for joining us today. From uh, I think you're out on the West Coast still. Yes, I'm in Venice Beach. Thank you very much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure. Oh, of course, uh, looks like you're in the office too. That's a good sign. <laughs> uh, you know, my it's it's a home office. I've kitted it out to make make it look like a spaceship. I'm not sure it really works, but there we go. <laughs> yeah, it looks good. The um, you know, even though you're owned by the uh, Unilever uh, mothership, as we call it, you're still pretty much operating as an independent company, independent CEO. And um, I'm just curious, uh, have, have you stayed true to a lot of the things that, that the principles that uh, kind of Janian and, and company founded this on, uh, you know, personalization, education, human touch? I'm curious about that. But maybe just to start out, give us, a, give us the rundown. What's, what is Dermalogica today around the globe? Uh, you know, I mean, the size, yeah, we're a, we're, we're a decent sized professional skincare company, about 1,200 direct employees. And when we sort of look at the others, we're about 5,000 people. And as you said, the tribe um, business in pretty much 88 countries, um, about 50% salon, 50% you know, direct to consumer, retail, and those sort of areas. Wow, that's a nice um, mix. It is a good mix, actually. It's uh, you know our heritage is is the treatment um, salon is the salons and and is actually skin treatments, and that's what's so so exciting. You know, the question about are we true to the past is, yeah. you know, I think as a CEO you can come in and you can change some things, but the thing you can't change in a company is the DNA. The DNA was there from the day it was founded, how it was created, and and in our case it was created by Jane and Raymond um, Wilwind, and they. And they created a school, right? And it's a, it was literally, it's called the International Dermal Institute. It was in uh, 1983. And, and it would taught skin treatment. So basically, you were a therapist, you were a licensed therapist, of which there were very few in the, in the US at that time. Right. And you got to know how to do treatments better. And that school was all we did until three years later when we created Dermalogica brand to go with the teaching. So it's quite interesting to sort of see, be in a company, you know, I'm, I've got about a 25-year history in this industry, which is very, very different. And that's, um, and that's because we actually teach treatments. Right, right. So was it, was it a, um, a um, husband and wife uh, duo team? Yeah. Is that how it started? That's, that's, yeah, they that, came that, over together. That's amazing. He's South African. She's. You don't uh, hear that. You don't hear those stories that much, or if you do, they don't end well. <laughs> no, they they end beautifully well. This one. Oh, no, 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 um, And is Jane still, still involved? Both, a little they're bit? still both involved. Yeah. Still, Jane, oh, oh, it's great. It's great to have the founder because um, you know, especially when we like to start with for guidance. You know, if somebody there's a CEO to talk to. But also Jane's been instrumental because she's such a visionary that, you know, she, she, she's really helpful in moving the company forward now. And so, like, as a CEO and as a, fa- well, as a founder, you set the path for the company. 
And people then want to stick to that path. The beauty about it is if you're the founder and you set it, you can also change the path. Right. So Jane's actually been really helpful over the last years when we wanted to move forward, put it in a, the company into a different gear. She would actually be there. And like, because she's going on the new path, yep. it gives permission to all those other people who've been following her for years to say, you know what, this is a good future for us as well. Yeah, sounds like a perfect partnership. I mean, you are on the Reboot Chronicles. So as a CEO, you kind of come in and reboot certain things. And, yeah. and so I'm sure you've had to figure that out. And, uh, you know, especially when you're owned by a mothership, scale, it's all about scale and growth. Um, seems like you've done it that. Is about, well. It is about scale, growth, and profitability, and, you know, the sort of the things. Uh, but at the same time, it's also good about the ethics of what we do to make sure, which we've always been good. But, yep. you know, we've upped, upped our sustainability agenda, for example, which is hugely important now. And that's one actually out of all the things that the mothership has given us is is the experts in sustainability so that we could quickly flip to um, better packaging, more recyclability, more biodegradability, um, better sustainably sourcing. And that's right. actually the best thing for me from, from the mothership. The other thing that I'm very lucky of is and very privileged to be is that I got all the resources of a big company. But as an organization, as a CEO, I get, we get to choose where, what our destination is. And we're, we're in charge of it and we have to deliver it. Yeah. Um, and that's good because I don't know if you, you know, you've worked with big organizations as well. They have a lot of advantages, but they can also be, they can be quite heavy on people. Yeah, I've been, I've been in your exact shoes. I was another left coast company. This one was in San Francisco, but owned by AT and T. So that was a real tough mothership. So I, I felt that most of my job was just to serve and protect the employees from the from the influence of the East Coast. <laughs> so it's good. You're in LA. You can keep that culture going. Many companies don't. I mean, this is years later. So it's a it's a great story. And you've gone through uh, you know 2020 with COVID, and let's kind of look out in 21, 22. Mm -hmm. um, but from a you know, from a lockdown point of view, what what have been some of the most impactful things that the team has learned and maybe the tribe too, um, you know, going through what everyone went through in a global pandemic lockdown, especially with services and salons and the, the, mm -hmm. where you cater to. Um, even even one of your big partners, Ulta, I mean, there was a, uh, there was a lot of switching behavior, but really interested in that's that's all kind of in the past. Some people don't want to talk about it as much, but how has it really influenced you? What what big shifts are you seeing for the next couple of so, years now? So I think the first thing that we've realized, you know, again, you double down on your roots, right? And in terms of education, you know, the beginning of the pandemic as well, yeah, there was all the stuff that we had to change the new ways of working and all that, which everybody faced. But we also had, you know, we, we have 20,000 salons worldwide that just literally couldn't operate anymore. They do skin treatments, and then suddenly everybody's going around saying, no touch, no touch. I mean, how do you do a skin touch <laughs> treatment without touching people? So you know, we spent a lot of effort, and we realized that we brought in some experts, epidemiologists, other than to do what we call clean touch. So say, no, there is a way that you can touch people, and this is the way. You know, you don't just wear a mask. You wear a mask and a shield, for example. And we put these principles together. And the amazing thing that we saw then was we, you know, we created a class the way we do. We opened it to the industry. We thought we'd get a couple of thousand people. We ended up getting, at this point, we've had 60,000 people take our car class. I heard, I heard that. I thought it was a typo. That is amazing. So, yeah, 60,000 you know, therapists and makeup artists. And it's like... And it's, you know, the pride I have with that actually is like when I saw, actually it happened to be on my birthday, is I saw a small local newspaper in the UK <laughs> and there's a picture of a therapist in Saffron Walden and she's holding up her clean touch certificate 
as a, you know, in their local newspaper saying, look, I'm open, I'm safe, I know how to do this, and I've got my certification here from Dermalogica to do it. And you suddenly realize, for me, maybe it was obvious, but but for me, it was like, think, my God, we can really move an industry, not just clients, not just, you know, and, and, and peripheral industries as well, like makeup artistry. And I think that's something that's going to continue for what we do. So we've been looking at, and I think, thinking, you know, our mission in terms of professional skill development has to be bigger than just, you know, the exact very, very limited skills that maybe we teach. And so, for example, we branched out into things that, you know, that one of the latest classes we've just put out there is to help therapists and other people, massage therapists and, to, and hairdressers to um, counsel their patients better. You know, so how do you, because everybody's in a sort of low grade, low grade depression at the moment, as you know, um, as you often hear. And so we've, we've got a class basically run by really pro, uh, professionals out of Berkeley and they basically we teach okay how do you listen properly how do you you know be attentive how do you what do you do when somebody comes in to have just a cry on your shoulder right. and you know i think that's sort of i see more of that in the future um yeah as, and they're also used to talking a lot either to their uh, you know their dermatologist or their makeup artist or their you know just their stylist. I mean, I, I, my stylist loves to talk all the time. I'm like, I don't think we're supposed to be talking that much right now. She's like, oh, we have masks on. It's fine. I'm like, the, okay. Just no singing though. It's particularly true if somebody's touching you, right? Because there's a yes. very intimate connection when that human touch and you've got somebody's touching your face. It doesn't yep. happen very much. And um, it is such an important part of what we do and actually separates us a bit from some of the other med spas and others in the industry. But it's a... Uh, and, you know, in order and that that releases sort of uh, uh, hormones, which, you know, sort of get people in the right mood. But but it also means that there's that deep connection and that's why people want to chat. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which is uh, interesting. Do you guys always charge for your classes or are some of them included with the industry ones? No, I don't want to, ch- you know, it's I mean, I'd, I do. You know, it's not completely philanthropic in the way that. I like people to know that Dermalogica is able to bring these high quality classes. Um, but otherwise, yes, I, I, I want everybody to be successful. I want this industry back on its feet. Um, I need, you know, we need to have people understanding how to do professional services, clean services, um, even during pandemics and beyond. And because it's so ha- so important for the industry. So, no, we wouldn't charge for that. We're happy to do it for everybody for free. Yeah, and I like your thoughts about kind of the cross-training in other industries, you know, massage therapists, you know, they're, they're not getting a lot of coaching. And um, and you mentioned the UK. I mean, they have been really strict about opening up salons and, you know, the, they've, I mean, there's been a lot of fighting going on over there. Whereas right now I happen to be on, on site in Colorado, not in Chicago. And, you know, they opened up really early. I remember getting a haircut in April or something. Yeah. Whereas in other countries, it's been so... Um, I mean, their businesses are not coming back uh, as much. Are, are you seeing, um, I mean, have you seen a, a, a downturn in the number of businesses reopening or are most of them still coming back? And you're, I mean, you've got a big network. Did you say 10,000? Uh, no, globally more like 20,000. 20, I mean, I sorry. think, I mean, what, That's a big at the barometer. beginning I was worried that like we would lose a lot. Yeah. Um, very, very worried, obviously, because, you know, sort of it was such dire times for the, um, I mean, the most positive thing that I've trend I've seen recently is that it feels like we have, you know, there is some churn, but maybe 10, 15% churn. 
um, as in accounts, you know, who, who decide to close for personal reasons, for, um, you know, economic reasons. Yep. So, but we haven't seen a pickup. We haven't really seen that more accounts are going bust. Um, that we're, what we're seeing is that the accounts are definitely doing fewer treatments and therefore needing fewer supplies and things like that. But it's interesting that we're not seeing as many go um, go bankrupt, which for me is very positive. And I think is because these individual entrepreneurs who make up the part of our industry, they, you know, they pivoted, <laughs> they rebooted, right? Yeah. And um, whether it's through affiliate programs that we were offering or all these other things, you know, right. starting to do thought more things at distance, they actually moved. And it's actually some of the bigger players in the industry who've had a harder time. Um, because the bigger players are waiting often for somebody on a higher up level to say, hey, it's okay to do. Okay, where do I go now? Yeah. And that person's too busy maybe with other things. Plus they have overhead. I mean, some of them are just like four or five practice locations and they're a group of doctors and they happen to do estheticians too. And interesting. Mm. How do you um, how do you balance, you know, B2B versus consumer in terms of your your company, your culture. You're doing both. Most companies don't pull that off very well. I mean, you, it seems like you have a great partnership with Alta and uh, I think it's Sephora, the other one that you're Sephora, doing retail. But, yeah, Sephora, but David Jones, uh, Mecca in Australia, you know, uh, Vitas in Norway, um, nice. and Sorbet down in South Africa. So. Um, you know, so we have a sort of a lot of clients around the world. Yeah, look, that's an interesting balance. So, you know, my my philosophy has always been one of divide divide the businesses up into units, put people in charge of those individual units, um, give them good guardrails to, so that we know where we're going, and and let you know trust them to get on with it. Right. Um, and I think. And do you have products that, like, you sell a lot of pro products, mm. you know, like a Wella sells, you know, through salons, but they can't really sell at retail, but it still ends up getting sold through retail in some some cases. Yeah. Do, you, do you have certain products that you can't sell through retail or you just don't want to? Uh, yeah, we do. Oh, we do. oh, definitely. Yeah. we've. I mean, pro. a very simple number. You know, we've got about 100 formulae in the, like in bearing aside, we've had more than 200 SKUs, but about, yeah. let's say 100 different, um, you know, products, so to speak. I'd say uh, you know something like sixty of those are are retail, and then another forty are professional only. But in the professional, so the professional has the whole hundred, hundred different products, yep. um, and and in retail we'd only have about sixty. So it is so, it's a smaller range, yeah. So the um, the Revive Health and Beauty Wellness Index, as we've talked about before, like really spiked, like most industries did, you know, with with e-commerce just accelerating like yeah. crazy and it's most people think it's not a blip but um since you have two categories you know makeup and skincare it's like makeup was down for a long time do you see it you know trending back up now versus skincare obviously went through the roof people weren't going out and dressing up as much and so just curious how that looks from from your uh you know, your lens in terms of the the question's really about the future of skincare, but just, you know, kind of getting through this blip, is it, are people now more focused on, you know, the health and integrity of these beauty products because of what we went through in 2020? I think, you know, I think people, some of these trends have been in the market anyway beforehand, right? Yes. And I think there was, you know, I happen to be associated with a, um, a very fast growing makeup brand beforehand. Um, it was very pink. Yes, uh, it was. Uh, 
And yeah, uh, and we rode to a certain extent the Instagram wave of like, you know, with which was very showy. It was, you could see it was very, very visual. And, and obviously that sort of, that sentiment had changed. But I think that change, sentiment even started changing before COVID. And, and this move to clinical skincare, I think, is very much one of like sort of people excited about the technology. I think realizing as well that, um, that the natural product, there's lots of natural products, but not that the natural products maybe sort of sort of don't don't always deliver alone what you want. And that it's really about having clean products and products that are sort of healthy for you and, not, and maybe being a bit sort of less restrictive on saying that they have to um, definitely have a natural background. And so, but the performance of them has been important. And so as you continue to move forward, you know, we that's what we see. You know, people want products that work. And so when we put out, um, you know, if we're going to put out a product which is against um, age spots, it has to remove age spots, right? Uh, some of our acne products as well, you know, it, it, they need to, you have to see improvement on acne. And one of our products last year, for example, it was a retinol um, acne product as a sort of before and afters were so fabulous that, you know, that's what carries it. Um, I think there's an increasing number of, like a higher expectation of good clinical results um, uh, and that those clinical results can be demonstrated. And maybe it's because people have more time to research. And, you know, and to a certain extent, when you went to a store and you, you know, retail store and you spoke to maybe even spoke to somebody or just looked at the box, you know, you had a fair amount of information, but it's probably the problem. The person helping you probably didn't know everything there was to know about the 20,000 products in that store. Now, when you're in the internet and you're deeply researching one product, you are coming across pretty deep information on that one product. And so maybe, you know, you sort of, the consumer is becoming more knowledgeable. Yeah, some of them, yeah, so that kind of leads to um, one of our favorite topics is not just about this category, but about any category, but just personalization of shopping mm. personally. And a lot, a, a big piece of that can be educational. Usually it's like, um, you know, with, with, with um, technologies, you know, like Revive, where you're kind of like taking the funnel of 10,000 SKUs and saying, hey, these are the 10 or 20 that your skin type needs or your mm. profile matches. Or um, So very interested in your thoughts on the future of uh, personalization. First of all, what, what you guys are doing, you know, how do you, how, how do you actually help your customers yeah. deliver more personalization, I guess, is a great place to start. And then maybe we shift to, you know, what's the future look like? I think there's, yeah, there's two aspects of this is which are really important for me. One of them is, you know, okay, what you're going to do, which I'm, you know, sort of whether it's what we call face mapping or chats or widgets. So, you know, I'll talk and tell you what we do there. But mm. I think the other thing which is very interesting is, like, how do you actually have this happen and be relevant to your clients? And and I think often with these developments like personalization and the innovation comes to us from Silicon Valley, from Silicon Beach, from all these places, and it's great. Um, but like sometimes the innovation's ahead and it's looking for a solution. So, so one of the biggest challenges actually that we have at Dermalogica is like is thinking about like looking at the, at the at the world and saying, oh, there's these wonderful technologies, but how can I make them relevant for my business model or for my for my consumer? Right. And, and and I think a lot of people are spending a bit too much time on the, hey, this is a flashy new toy, let me talk about it, and not enough time of thinking about, am I actually plugging it in my system, which makes really fundamental change. 
you know, one of the toys, but it started as a toy, but now it's a fundamental system that we did um, is, you know, is a digitized version of face mapping. And, but, and so the, the actual, there's two ways to see this. The actual tool itself is um, you go to facemapping.me, for example, as a consumer, we right. take a bunch of photos, we use a whole host of skin analysis, and we can recommend uh, some good product, which is very, very personalized for you and s suitable for your skin, uh, give you some results on your skin, as well as um, some services, and tell you where to go to go get a good service. So that is one thing, and there's the, obviously the digitized version of it. The interesting th thing about it is that actually, you know, most people don't wake up in the morning and just think, hey, I wonder what product I should buy. <laughs> people wake up in the morning thinking, I've got something on my cheek. Uh, what should I do about it? What the hell is that? I right. talk about it, right? Exactly. So, it's, mm -hmm. so for me, face mapping is actually more integral to what we've done and for always. It's always been the way that we speak. It's, it's the way that our professional skin therapist experts speak to somebody and basically it's sort of like their prescription pad. What, what they see and what they recommend. And so we sort of re, you know, the first versions of our face mapping digital tool were very much about upload a photo and here's your results. Right. The later versions are very, very much more about how do you chat with a real expert, a real professional skincare therapist, a licensed, not a bot, not a sales agent. How do you get that real expertise? And that's actually a bit more motivating. And the technology is actually exactly the same as it was before. Right. But it's like it's it's the way you frame it. And are you answering somebody's question or are you trying to sell a solution? And and that for us is really, really important. Um, and is one of the ways we then personalize because the personalization comes by the expert saying, you know, this is what you need and this isn't what you need. And the AI and the and the tools help with those algorithms. Um, you know, because because we we can learn through them, um, and they suggest that right, and we can see if it works. But um, but that's part of it. And then the personalization, I think, also comes one step further because once you get a product, that product can be personalized. Now, most products, you know, you you, you squeeze the tube, you put it on your face, right? But we actually, with every launch, we do what we call um, we call them widgets. I used to call them atomic API widgets, and everybody's eyes rolled. <laughs> What's I he? I like that one. <laughs> and I, atomic because they were like separate. I studied physics, so you know whatever. Um, and they're usually APIs. That's why. But the yeah. idea behind these these widgets is, it's it's a piece of functionality that's useful to the consumer when we do a launch. Mm. And so for some, for example, you know, with a re recent launch about which is um, Hydromask exfoliant, which is an exfoliant with these small spheres. It was sort of it, it was a functionality which would say where where should you rub exfoliate the spheres more than another another place. For some other products we've done over the time, it's it's a ritual depending on what we see on your face, of how you would massage that product into the skin. Right. And it's you know exactly. we use and depending on we even use sentiment in event analysis in some of our widgets, where depending on what we see, we suggest sort of different pressure points, and it's an interesting way I think. Because personalization is not just the product, it's also the service and, you know, and the way you apply it. And so I think, you know, we've used, we've tried to use technology as much as possible to take that one level further. Yeah, brilliant. It, it makes me think of another um, thing that uh, cross-industry, whether it's food, health, beauty, wellness, but the personalization mm -hmm. of the product itself. So there's a few 
I'll still call them startups that are working on that. So they'll be rather than having, you know, a thousand SKUs, you have unlimited because you're personalizing and having, yeah. t- having talked to a couple of the CEOs and their investors on these, haven't interviewed any on the show yet, but uh, it doesn't seem very scalable to me. The big brands scoff at it, but uh, do you see us going there? Whether it's hair, whether it's hair or mean, food or makeup or whatever, just pick a category, whatever's easy. <laughs> I mean, I've got a pretty, I've got a bit of history in personalized skincare because I, I know that's why, I, that's why I'm asking you. <laughs> I, I, you know, I founded the product, you know, Prescribed Solutions Customized Skincare back in 2002 with a business partner, David May, together. And then we, you know, we built that company for many years and then sold it to Ferndale, um, Ferndale Labs, a biopharma out of uh, Michigan. Um, that, the scalability was the difficult thing, yeah. you know, and it's and also not just the scale. The scalability came from not just because you had to work out how, you know, how you could deliver the product. In our cases, we had boosters that you could add to products and there were a huge number of combinations. But also the problem is that once you start having such a wired array, like the, the customer and this time in case the patient, because it was all sold through doctors, they couldn't know they could no longer just go up and say, I want that product. They needed an. They needed somebody to say which one it was, they and that impeded the secret sale. decoder ring or something. I know exactly. So, so I think the problem is scalability. Now, we've got some pretty. Like, I can't tell you the exact things we are doing, but I can guarantee you that by July this year, um, you know, you'll see some. You'll see products for us in terms of scalable personalization because we've got basically building more intelligence into the product where I don't need an expert to adapt the product, but the skincare adapts itself on your skin. Exactly. Um, and it's a, bit more, it's a bit more intelligent and it's using, you know, it can read markers more than others. And so I do see that. So, yeah, so it's interesting, right? And I think people always say they want customized products, but in the end, they only want customized if they have an expert to tell them exactly what they want. Otherwise, they're actually much more happy. In my view, they're happier not customized products. Yeah, and it's different. 2022 here, you know, coming up, it's like the technology has gotten better. You've got yeah. different types of AI things like Revive that can help you, you know, recommend things. You've got we're, we're just pick an industry. You can actually diag the diagnosis doesn't have to be in person. So that 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 helps. And you just got to figure out how to scale it operationally. <laughs> So that's good insight. Um, but and it kind of leads me to what everyone loves to talk about on the show is just how do you handle growth and innovation? You've got the perfect setting because you've got a mothership, you've got yourself. You know, do you believe in like partnering and you know working with a lot of tech vendors? Um, are you guys mostly science based? I mean, you you've come up, you've just announced a couple of new products that are pretty cutting edge. I mean, it doesn't really you don't hear it in consumer news, I'm sure, but um, it seems yeah. like you're very, very science based in innovation. But yeah, just curious, how do you approach growth and innovation? Uh, well, I mean, growth and innovation is like sort of a sweeping topic for me, you know, as a, you know, and we think about like I come back to the heritage of the site uh, of the business, its expertise and developing skills so people can take care of their future. Right. So so the therapists who work with us are in charge of a beautiful future. But at the same time, I think for me as well, I, it's also about the digital skills and the digital fluency of of my of my employees and, you know, and. And the technical advances and innovation has to come there. So I see innovation, yes, in the product sense, and we're definitely using cutting edge technology. We work with some of the, some incredible suppliers. We've got a parent company in our research and yep. development lab, which is massive and awesome. But I also actually would take it one step further that, you know, I need, 
I need digital innovation and, and clever innovation in everything we do. So whether it's, uh, you know, we use robotic process automation in terms of the way we process some of our shipments for finance. You know, that's the way we th I want people to think about it. Um, we'll, you know, in, in many different areas, we'll try and sort of find you know, another good example. We use uh, virtual reality in a way to um, to visualize which promotions are working best and which promotions aren't. When we when you're sort of talking about you've got six thousand clients, for example, in the U.S. Um, in terms of uh, salons, and then you've got all these different promotions happening all the time. You want to understand well who's actually doing it. And to visualize that, we use uh, we work with a, a Silicon Beach VR company. So so for me. Like the innovation has to come into the company, right? Um, in every discipline, and we have these what we call the uh, guiding principles, and that's one of them. And then, you know, what we find then is that the innovation is often from very small companies that bring it to us. You know, it's companies or smaller companies, put it that way, and they're quite focused on one area. And so, the interesting thing for me is that you know, traditionally big companies, um, you know would only work with big suppliers. And the problem with those big suppliers is they don't have the innovation because the people who are innovating are only innovating in the small part, right? So the sort of typical example is Salesforce can do some interesting things. And they you know, they continue to advance and whether it's on their commerce cloud or something like that, and personalization on their commerce cloud for DTC, they do it, you know, give it a nice name, Einstein, you know, some yeah. sort of philosopher, yeah. and they do it. But it, is it really cutting edge in the way? Actually, we use something called Intellimize. Um, which uses machine learning to micro-segment and then deliver a personalized ex um, experience on our website. And that's all they do. <laughs> and it's exactly. like, yep. so for me, you know, so start with you've got the innovation. You realize that innovation comes from these small cuts, which means that you have to change the way you work so that you make yourself open to the ecosystem of innovation. And for us, that's meant things like on the DTC side, We've moved over to Shopify because that is an ecosystem which is open. Um, you know, when the way we scale our ERP is also we've pulled things out of the ERP that everybody else would do in 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 in, yeah. in you know. Most in, most people don't throw innovation in that category, but it's good you do. No, but it's but you know, if you start pulling things out of the ERP and doing it separately, then you suddenly have the opportunity to flick on a switch with one of these bright entrepreneurs who exactly. will show you how you can do two-hour delivery and get the whole thing running in four, six weeks. Yeah, yeah, we call it dancing with startups, and uh, and since you were once one, you're you're uh, you're doing it right. Yeah. Really, we really want to thank you for joining us uh, today. Uh, it'd be fun to get kind of a parting story from you, maybe a personal challenge that you've faced in the past that uh, our viewers always get a uh, inspirational kick out of that. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> most, people go two, most people go two or three jobs back on this question <laughs> versus current events but now just uh, you know, words of wisdom words of wisdoms um you know i think the um if i you know i think a while back and obviously you know i was in a startup um it became you know it became a decent company but then i went to a company which was you know benefit which was much 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 larger and, you know, this was this really interesting thing that happened for me was like I had been in a role where I had to run everything. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, as a founder, you know, if you don't have an opinion on something, it's not going to happen in your company. And 
you know, your customer's not just not going to like it. It's not going to work. You do bring it, you know, you've got your team and all that, but it's so, so much of your work is like being involved in everything. You get to a company suddenly, you know, which is doing half a billion dollars in retail sales. <laughs> you, you adopt the same approach. You're heading for disaster. So I think the sort of, you know, one of the biggest things I learned is like, it's sort of this question about delegation. How do you delegate and how do you, how do you choose what you get involved in? Yeah, um, exactly. And that's, and I think, you know, the big, one of the biggest challenges was the flip from like the flip from having to micromanage in certain areas to trying to make sure you're not micromanaging in, in all areas. And then maybe, you know, maybe the ultimate is to sort of oscillate a bit with a bit of granularity and then come out again. Um, you know, so you sort of, you're in control and you understand where the business is going. You know, so when, I mean, I, in my professional challenges that, you know, that was one of the biggest things that I sort of remember. And it's something I think about a lot at the moment when you're yeah. sort of. It's easy to make, up, easy to make fun of, but not fun when you're going through it. That's a, that's a good one. Yeah. It's uh, every stage is a different, uh, you've got to really assess. And most people think delegating is just delegating, but choosing the right things that you're really good at and then actually getting agreement on that from other people is always an interesting discussion. And if, yeah, just throw, and delegating without guardrails. Very is, different. Is, is very, very wrong. That's just, that's not actual delegating. A proper delegation is like, this is the direction we want to go. Because if you put a good guardrail, like a limit on something, what we find is people stretch to that limit. Yep. And if you don't put a limit on it, they don't know how to, they don't stretch. So actually by putting limits, that's how you get your company to go faster. That's how you get them. You know, you put a budget of a million, they spend a million. You don't put a, don't put a budget. They actually only spend half a million because they thought they weren't allowed to spend the second. So yeah. that's the interesting part of that delegation. Yeah. Good advice. Sounds like you're doing it well. You've been listening to uh, the Reboot Chronicles with Dean Tobias here, really at least from the CEO of Dermalogica, who joined us today. And we want to thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. I really appreciate yeah. it. Take care. Hope to see you soon. Maybe in person next time. Yes, I look forward to it. Cheers.